E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. Well, when I came to Virginia, I didn't know what I wanted to plan. I'm Erin Scala, and this is a special episode of I'll Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes and explore winemaking in Virginia. I'll Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The Virginia wine industry has gone from zero to 60 in the last 30 years or so. And you might be wondering, what's going on with the wines in this state? Well, the common narrative of Virginia's wine history is that Thomas Jefferson had the first vineyards planted, but they mysteriously never flourished. In hindsight, we know this was because of phylloxera. By the 1890s, Virginia became known for high-quality scoopernong, which was usually made as a sweeter, aromatic wine. Scoopernong was sold alongside some of the great wines of the world, with little of the bias that we see today toward non-vinifera varieties. But prohibition killed the momentum of the entire industry, and Scoopernong's budding fame was squashed. In the 1960s, Constantine Frank started vociferously spreading the word about Vitis vinifera in the United States. Trevor Lawrence paid attention to his successes in New York State, And in 1970, Lawrence made his first vinifera wine in Virginia. Soon after, he founded the Vinifera Wine Growers Association. If we focus in and near the Monticello AVA, a few pivotal people really laid the groundwork for today's industry. Gabriele Rause planted many of the state's first grapes and continues to influence the industry today. Dennis Horton experimented with different grape varieties and grew Virginia's first Viognier and Petit Mansang. At Horton, they also have the oldest Norton vines in Virginia. Luca Paschina has been a sort of ambassador of Virginia wine to the world, in particular with his Octagon Bordeaux-style blend bottling. Lucy Morton, a viticulturalist, has helped lay the vineyard groundwork for many wineries. Elaine Fouthy, a sommelier, first listed Virginia wines on her wine list back in the 1980s. And though he is quite a drive from the Monticello AVA, Jim Law, a wine grower, has helped the wine industry by fostering round table sessions where winemakers gather to blind taste and discuss their wines. So what makes Virginia unique? One thing that the Virginia wineries seem to deal with more than other wine regions is a wide variety of challenges, and the challenges come in two main forms, living pests and climactic challenges. Pests can be tiny, and insects can wreak havoc. 
the insects that keep finding their way into the area keeps us hopping. Uh, we have insect in issues that we have these invasive insects coming in now that are really putting a hurt on the industry. So we have the SWDs, spotted wing Drosophila. That is pretty much a widespread problem in Virginia right now, a lot of other regions too, but we have it particularly bad because of the humidity and the rains during the growing season. Yeah, it has like these little saws on the end of their body that they use to bore a little hole into a healthy grape and then they can climb in and breed inside it. The weird things that people don't usually expect is when the bear comes in through the fence. Even bears. There were, there were bears like jumping deer fences, and, like, 10 foot fences to get into, into the grapes. And that's kind of scary because you can go out and get a raccoon out of your vineyard, but getting a bear out of your vineyard is, uh, that's more challenging. <laughs> uh, you know, turkeys are a little more challenging. I know vineyards that have problems with turkeys and what we call a gang of turkeys. If you have 25 turkeys come into your vineyard, you'll lose a lot of crop really fast. Turkeys eat grapes? Oh, everything eats grapes. Wow. And turkeys are, their heads are at cordon height. What do you do? Is set somebody out there with a shotgun? The shotguns are effective. Dogs kind of work pretty well if you can get your dog to stay out there. Um, we've tried recorded scare tactics like barking dogs. Um, we have bird scare alarms. Um, I know guys that use propane cannons that were developed for airports to scare birds. Those are highly effective on turkeys, neighbors, everything. <laughs> That was Jake Bushing at Michael Schaap's Wineworks on turkeys. The struggle is real. We have raccoons, possums. Hey, I've got 40 raccoons in my vineyard, and that happens a lot, too. You know, we have all the usual deer and bear and raccoons. And raccoons, turkeys. Deer. Deer, raccoon. When I was at Pollock, we had a serious problem with groundhogs. Birds. Birds, squirrels. Deer. Squirrels. Raccoons are even more challenging if they get in through your fencing. Everything loves grapes. You know, but if you do a good job, you can, you're able to control it between fencing and netting and, and everything. If you're serious, it's, we usually have the upper hand, but you have to be willing to commit everything to, you know, protecting your fruit. <laughs> Sometimes the failure of a simple crop like acorns can start a devastating chain effect. I guess you could call a failure of the acorn crop in this area around Charlottesville and Albemarle County and, and Central Virginia. And so there were a bunch of starving squirrels, especially by, you know, after about the point where the acorns are dropping and they should be, you know, starting to eat them and save them for the winter. You know, it was about the same time that we're thinking about harvesting our grapes. And, and it wasn't just the squirrels. There were, there were squirrels everywhere. There were raccoons everywhere. There were groundhogs everywhere. I mean, just every mammal was in the vineyard. And it was, it was awful. I mean, it was, people were losing ma major amounts of crop. The climate is also something that you can never really count on. In the last decade, we've had a severe drought, a few intense hurricanes, hail, frosts, rains, and a beautiful vintage here or there. I mean, it seems like it's, it's a challenge, if not one of the hardest places to make wine. Um, maddeningly so, some vintages. You know, Virginia offers a chance to learn a lot. Uh, every year is different. The vintage variation is mind-blowing. Every year has its own share of challenges, from hurricanes to late-season rains to drought. You just never know what to expect. When you're dealing with nature, the, the term wildness comes to bear sort of constantly. 
for us, I think the concept of wildness comes with every single vintage and that in Virginia, we're so driven by the vintage that every single year seems like a surprise. You know, people will ask us, oh, was it a normal year? And my answer is always, hell no, there's nothing normal about this. You never know, you know, what's coming. And our vintages are so different from year to year. The difference between 2010 being our best sort of West Coast style vintage and 2011, the next year, being some of, you know, the most rainfall we ever experienced during the harvest, totally decimated the harvest. 2011 certainly taught us, reminded us that hurricanes could be amazing. So uh, 2008 was another hurricane year. Um, they keep us humble. Uh, you watch this freight train coming at you a week away, and it's, it's always daunting. But we've been really fortunate, and th there can be stretches in Virginia with 30 or 40 years without a hurricane. So we remain optimistic. You cannot be a grape grower in Virginia without a healthy dose of optimism, borderline insanity. Uh, <laughs> One of the weather conditions that usually affects the vintage is the hurricane season. If we get a hurricane or storms from hurricane spinoffs, the rainy hurricane conditions will usually guide picking. A good vintage here is usually one where you can pick because of determined ripeness and not because a huge storm is coming tomorrow. Especially in the hurricane years, grapes that come in before the hurricane season, such as most white grapes and early ripening reds, such as Merlot, and grapes that can hang on during a hurricane and come in after the hurricane season when they dry out, such as Tanat and Petit Mansang. These grapes tend to do quite well. Rachel Stinson Vrooman of Stinson Vineyards talks grapes and hurricanes. Hurricanes, you can pretty much count on at least one during harvest season. Um, you just don't know when. It's probably the main reason for picking most of the time is you're going to wind up making your picking decisions based on whether it's raining or not and how long it's going to rain for and how much it's going to dilute the fruit. Yep. And that's why we like Sauvignon Blanc so much. Um, and then for Inquita, the Pinot Noir actually works really well because you can get it in before hurricanes are really a threat. Red blends are also great ways to hedge one's bets against the weather. Because Merlot usually comes in before the hurricanes hit, most Bordeaux-style blends are, not surprisingly, Merlot-based. Matthew Fino, the winemaker at King Family Vineyards, discusses his approach to Bordeaux varieties. Uh, we work with Bordeaux varietal uh, when it comes to red, meaning Merlot, Cabernet Franc, um, Petit Verdot, and a tiny bit of Malbec. Uh, we don't grow any Cabernet Sauvignon. So one of the interesting things about King Family Bordeaux blends is that you do a higher percentage of Petit Bordeaux. In my heritage, mm -hmm. 25% is high. Yeah, well, compared I'm, to Bordeaux, I guess. I, yeah, but we're not in Bordeaux and I don't have any Cabernet Sauvignon. So I need, I need to bring some tannic structure in some ways. And I don't get that with the Cabernet Sauvignon because I think Cabernet Sauvignon is super challenging in central Virginia. I'm saying Central Virginia because I think in Virginia you can find some good Cabernet Sauvignon, especially if you go a bit more in, in north. But in Central Virginia, I think you know Merlot is very strong no matter what, and that's mainly my base. Merlot is my base, but I still want to get some structure out of it. And uh, the way I get the structure into my Bordeaux blend is by using Petit Verdot. 
in some weird way, and again, like that's when it gets very specific to uh, to every terroir. Petit Verdot doesn't ripen very well in in Bordeaux, but meanwhile they can ripen their their Cabernet Sauvignon. And here I feel that's exactly the opposite. We cannot ripen very well the Cabernet Sauvignon, and we can ripen the Petit Verdot. Right now, I'm in a red wine fermenter tank at Early Mountain Vineyards. Where I'm sitting right now, come harvest time, the space will be full of red grapes fermenting. In hurricane years, you'll find lots of better reds from the early ripeners. In non-hurricane years, you'll find better reds from the late ripeners. Jim Law of Linden Vineyards was one of the first people to focus on Bordeaux-style blends. Jim has different microclimates, different soils, and different elevation than we have in the Monticello AVA. And he tends to have better luck with Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, when I came to Virginia, I didn't know what I wanted to plant. Um, I was hired as a winemaker back in 81. And so I came and they happened to have some uh, Sauvignon, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, that did pretty well. But then as I, I started getting the lay of the land and started visiting other wineries, it became pretty evident that uh, the Bordeaux varieties were had a lot of strength here, a bit of culture. So when I started Linden in 85, I planted Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc because those were the two that seemed to shine the most. Merlot already we were kind of questioning winter damage problems. Most of the sites weren't that good that were planted in Virginia at the time, and Merlot was taking a pretty good beating. Um, and nobody had the teaker dough, so it was Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. With time, I went through a huge learning curve, and it was about 20 years ago when I started understanding that the relationship between variety and soil was super important. Uh, I, did, I understood that it was important, but I didn't understand it. So I started researching and started going to Bordeaux, and once I got to Bordeaux, it became quickly apparent what that relationship was and what I needed to focus on. So starting about uh, 15 years ago, I started replanting the vineyard on more soil appropriate. And uh, really, uh, when I planted in 85, it was hit and miss, and all those vines are gone now because I missed with the reds. Um, but with uh, now, it's, it's solid, and uh, the, the wines are much, much better because of that. As far as Bordeaux, I really focus more on the Medoc on the left bank and also Pesac Leonion because um, for whatever reason, and I'm glad, uh, Cabernet is king here. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon does extremely well if you have it on the right soil, which we do now. And our blends, even if we have better years that it would be considered better Merlot years or Franc years, like even 2015, the Cabernet Sauvignon is still majority grape in our blends, which is all done blind. So, it's all about Cabernet Sauvignon, which is why I focus more on the left bank. And I think Cap Franc Virginia is interesting too. I see, you know, it's a, uh, a lot of people have got a love or hate relationship with Cap Franc, but I think Cap Franc is super interesting. Once you start having some good Cap Franc, you can make some wonderful things with it. You should not be afraid of a little bit of digital character in Cap Franc. That's, that's a part of, of Cap Franc. Um, I love more and more working with Cap Franc. So Bordeaux-style red blends are great ways to make sure that you can have a viable harvest every year. And each winemaker has a different way of approaching it. 
When it comes to whites, Virginia is famous for Viognier. And there's a few great producers. Blenheim Vineyards makes a delicious Viognier, and so does Veritas Vineyards. There's also some great Chardonnay. Michael Schaps makes a single vineyard Chardonnay from the Wild Meadow Vineyard. It's quite delicious. And Early Mountain Vineyards makes some gorgeous Chardonnay as well. Savion Blanc is also doing well here and has been for quite some time. You'll find some great examples from Linden and also Glen Manor. Andrew Cole, wine director and owner of Lampo, remembers back to one of his first jobs. More for me, it was always Glen Manor because um, they were just, uh, you know, again, not a winery. I don't know them personally. It's just something that I've always, you know, just honed in on. I remember the first time I tried it, it was 2010 Sauvignon Blanc. And this is when I was first becoming a wine buyer. Uh, Dave brought it in. He was like, dude, try this and put it in front of me. At this point, we didn't have any Virginia wines on the wine list. I was like, there's no way. And he's like, yeah, that's swear to you, this is Virginia Sauvignon Blanc. He's like, there's no way. Um, and, you know, he pulled the bottle out, showed it to me, and I just I immediately got behind it. That was probably the first Virginia wine that I really championed on my, on my wine list. Um, you know, I couldn't sell enough of it. I absolutely adored it. There's also another grape that's been picking up some traction. With its small berries and its thick skins, Petit Mansang has airflow between the individual berries. So you don't get rot in the humidity. And the grapes are so tough that they can hang on even during a very strong hurricane. I've heard several winemakers refer to it as bulletproof in the vineyard. But Petit Mensang is not the easiest wine to make. And winemakers approach it really from all angles. Some people are making dry style Petit Mensang, like Horton Vineyards and Michael Schaap's Wineworks. Other people are making sweet Pasito style dessert Petit Mensangs. And still others are taking advantage of Petit Mensang's acidity and using it in small amounts to blend with Viognier to boost Viognier's acidity without having to add tartaric acid or anything. Um, similarly, I think uh, like Petit Mensang is something I get excited about in Virginia, which is, can't say something I would have expected with the varietal, but um, I love when winemakers take to, you know, fully dry white petite man saying, I love the aromatic qualities you get, kind of those floral notes and tropical fruit. Chris Scott is a wine grower who's been experimenting with some small home vineyards in the hopes of one day opening up a boutique winery. Petite man saying, it has a lot of potential. What I do is I do off dry to, golly, it's more like a cabinet style Riesling more than anything else. It has that sweetness where you know that it's going to go well with the spicy food, but it, it just has so much varietal character. Piedmont Sang is uh, completely different. Um, it's completely different than anything I've ever worked with. It's neat because the vines grow well, at least in parts of Virginia where it's growing now. Um, Petit Mint Sang also, I think, is unique where this area is really has potential for Petit Mensang because of the heat, humidity, and the ability to withstand all the pressure from the moisture and, and, and the soils. They make, seem to make it through the winters, had some rough winters. Really holds up well during harvest. It'll, if anything can hang through a hurricane, it's Petit Mensang. You know, it just keeps on going. You can take it, you know, it, it's very flexible in that you can make a dry wine out of it or you can make a, you know, off dry, like the kind of acid sugar ratio of, that you might find in Loire Chenin Blanc or German Riesling, although with different alcohol. Or you can take it fully sweet and make delicious dessert wines. And so it's very interesting that way. It is challenging in that you have this 
searing acidity when when it's at normal bricks levels, normal sugar levels compared to other other white grapes. And tasting in the vineyard, you're tasting the grapes, and you're just compelled to like walk away from it and say, "There's no way we could pick this." Although I'm not sure that's right. But in general, you're waiting for the acid to burn out a little bit, just so you're not hurting people's palates if you want to make a dry wine. And uh, and at that time, the sugar levels are rising to the point of where you're getting relatively high alcohols for white wine. It's it's definitely a balancing act in terms of finding the sweet spot where it is palatable both in terms of the acidic structure and then the alcohol, you know, acid alcohol matrix, and then also taste good. So that's uh, that's kind of the challenge of making a dry that winemakers are still working with. And, you know, I worked with Michael and we, we worked a lot on that with his petite men saying, you know, he does skin contact to basically drop some of the acid out, um, raise the pH a little bit and, uh, and help with the mouthfeel, give more to the mouthfeel that buffers that acidity. And I've, I've definitely taken that as that's a very good technique for the grape. Ben Jordan just mentioned Michael Shapps' approach to skin contact and petite men saying. Michael Shapps has really been kind of a pioneer in taming the acid in petite men saying in some pretty successful attempts to make a dry version of petite men saying. Uh, the aromatic whites, I like to do the skin contact. Um, you know, the master sintuculaire, as they say in France, um, is really beneficial. For a couple of reasons, you know, especially more so in petite men saying where you have a, a low pH, high acid juice that, that by doing the skin contact raises the pH and uh, gets to a more, more manageable level. Uh, it also helps get a little more um, phenolic character to the wine, which broadens the palate structure and gives you more, you know, complexity as well and aromatic intensity. So the skin contact to me is really vital for, for those varieties. More than petite men saying, but the Viognier has been successful, though it's more challenging. Viognier has been successful. So, yeah, so the petite men saying, picking it is challenging, trying to get that balance where you don't have too much sugar and or too much acid. So we've been pretty lucky here to kind of time it right. And then the skin contact really adds another dimension to it before we press it and uh, barrel ferment it. About how much are you going for with the skin contact? We've gone anywhere from eight to ten hours to overnight, depending again, depends on the fruit, the vintage, the pH starting point, and we'll test the pH as we're soaking it to see how it's going up. And we don't want it to be over overdone either, because then it can again the pH be totally out of whack with the acid balance of the wine. So we really need to be careful on that. All right, hold up there a second. Skin contact, raising the pH, and lowering the acid? Are y'all following this? Wait, I know. Let's phone a friend. I mean, let's phone an enologist. I'm going to call Joy Ting, the enologist and production manager at Michael Schaap's Wineworks. Joy, what is the deal with skin contact, acid, and pH? And there's a lot of potassium in the skins and potassium interacts with the acid in the, in the juice and it precipitates out some of that acid. So when you do skin contact on whites, you tend to lose acid. So on a grape like Viognier, which has all these wonderful phenolic compounds, it also comes in with relatively low acid and relatively high pH to begin with. So the more you skin contact it, the more you lose the acid and the more your pH goes up. For our white wines, a lot of our stability in the white wines comes from the acid profile. So with Viognier, we always have to be careful in how long we let that skin contact go on. Again, we want the flavors, but we also want the wine to be stable. 
But sometimes we actually use the skin contact to bring down the acidity. So for example, with Petite Men Sang, Petite Men Sang is one that the bricks will go up really pretty. F- I mean, the bricks, we usually harvest our Petite Men Sang with some of the highest bricks that come in here. So we get high bricks on that, It tend, but it also tends to have a lot of acid and have really low pHs. Sometimes that's too bracing of an acidity profile and you can't just let it hang in the vineyard longer to let the acids come down because the bricks are going up so fast you would have a really high alcohol wine and probably not be able to ferment it to dryness because the alcohol eventually will kill off the yeast. So with Petit Men saying we've been experimenting to some degree with giving it a little bit of skin contact essentially to treat the acidity on the Petit Men saying to bring the acidity down just a little bit to get that pH more into a range where the yeast will be able to ferment it as far as we want it to be fermented without getting stressed. Because once the yeast gets stressed, they put off off odors and off flavors that we don't want to deal with. So skin contact, the effect of skin contact on the acid can be a good thing, like Petit saying, or it can be a challenge like with VMA. But Joy, could you break it down a little bit more? Say that I'm a yeast cell. Why is the low pH so uncomfortable to me? So the, the way that helps me to think about pH and its effect, particularly on microbes and sort of their overall viability, is to remember that pH is really about the concentration of hydrogen ions in the solution. And it's an inverse relationship. So the higher the pH, the fewer hydrogen ions. The lower the pH, the more hydrogen ions, just the way the math works out. That's how, how the scale works. So if you think about something that has a very low pH, means there's a lot of hydrogen ions floating around in the solution. Well, ions are charged particles, and that's going to be a challenge to cell membranes. If you break the cell membrane, it's sort of like getting a cut on your skin, only a lot more traumatic. Um, it's more like getting a gash so that the insides start to kind of spill out. And that can kill these single cell organisms. That's, they only have one cell. If it bursts, it bursts. So the more hydrogen ions you have, the harder it is for them to fight against um, the, the harshness of the physical environment. The lower the hydrogen ions in the solution, the more they're able to essentially repair as fast as that damage is done or you know, pump back out the hydrogen ions that are flooding into their cells. So if you think about it as the concentration of hydrogen ions, hydrogen ions being a stressor, then the more hydrogen ions you have, the more stressed it is. The the fewer hydrogen ions you have, the less stressed it is. That helps me to think about kind of which way we want to go there. And then to make sure I'm getting this right, so, uh, but then when you add alcohol to the equation, things change again. Well, it's, it's actually, there are multiple stressors on the same part of the cell. So the hydrogen ions are stressing the membranes and the alcohol is stressing the membranes. So that's why the stress is cumulative. So if you have more hydrogen ions, meaning a lower pH, more hydrogen ions, plus more alcohol, then you have all this stress on the cell. And so at a pH that might not have killed the cell in a water-based environment, the more alcohol you put in there, that same pH might cause that cell to burst because it's also fighting against the, the alcohol. Yeah, it sucks to be a single-celled organism. It, you got one it, shot. It, it does and it doesn't. You also get to divide every 20 minutes. So you have lots of offspring. They're, ident- they're genetically identical to you. So as long as somebody survives, you've got it. But Joy, 
If I've lowered my acid and raised my pH, haven't I made it easier for all sorts of microbes to live in my wine? One of the reasons Saccharomyces cerevisiae is a good yeast for wine is that it can tolerate higher acid, lower pH, and give a nice, good, clean fermentation. And when it's at that, at a, at a higher acid level, the other spoilage mi- microbes are more stressed and are less likely to compete with the yeast. So what that means is there's this middle zone of pH and acid that favors Saccharomyces cerevisiae over the other microbial competitors that might be there. So it gives the Saccharomyces a chance to ferment the sugar before some of the other microbes that are in there that might cause spoilage can ferment that sugar. So it's this sort of competitive advantage that Saccharomyces has that it can tolerate these higher acid environments. So in terms of skin contact, then if we go back to skin contact, if the if the pH is too low and the acid is too high, even the Saccharomyces isn't going to do well. And that's sometimes the case with petite mensang. Enologist Joy Ting, thanks for breaking down the science behind dry petite mensang and skin contact in Virginia. Now let's take a look at some people who are making sweet petite mensang. Matthew Fino of King Family Vineyards evokes the straw wines or dried pesito-style wines of his homeland in Hermitage when he makes a dessert petite mensang from dried grapes. I'm from uh, the Hermitage area. I'm getting back to, to this reference of Northern Rome. And when I was at school, there were a trend in, in, the, in Hermitage where we were starting to make some vampire. And Hermitage in, um, in the AOC is one of the few AOC in France that can do van pie. And everybody knows the van pie. I mean, everybody knows. In, in France, everybody knows the van pie of Jura. Uh, so it's uh, near, near Switzerland. They are very well known to make van pie. So um, you might want to translate van pie in, uh, in English, but it's straw wine. And it's basically, it's a, a pasito style wine. But that is very common uh, in, in Jura. They've got some very good van pie. I, I love Jura in general. I work there because it's uh, between the vin jaune and, and the vampire. It's wine that I really like. Anyway, that being said, uh, nobody in France knows a lot about vampire from Hermitage, but everybody knows about vampire from Jura. And uh, my um, report, uh, my school uh, subject report, was about uh, this kind of uh, wine, vampire. Uh, because I wanted, because I'm from Hermitage, I wanted to show that you know in Hermitage we can do some manpai, and I wanted to. It's made with Marsan, while in Jura it's made with Savagnin and Trousseau and other grapes like that, and I wanted to compare the two styles. So I studied how to make manpai or pasito style wine, and uh, when I went to uh, to Italy too, when I worked in Italy, I was helping a, a friend over there that worked with me in the Hermitage area. And uh, he had a, a, a new vineyard uh, in, I mean, a new winery in, in Ramandolo. And Ramandolo is in Friuli. And, uh, and in Ramandolo, their main wine is, uh, is a vampire. I mean, it's a Pasito style wine. So, um, you know, I had a bit of experience. And when I arrived here in, in Virginia, um, other than Luca at the time uh, from Barbosville, I think everybody else was doing. And still a lot of people do that, so I'm not going to say anything bad about it, but a lot of people are doing um, uh, the cryo extraction or, you know, the fake ice wine style. 
I'm like, why, why in Virginia where it's so hot and warm weather, why are we trying to do a, a ice wine style while we can dry it? You know, and it's for me, it's so much more of a natural process in some ways. So when I was here, you know, the first year I've done the fake ice wine style, and after a while I'm like, okay, let's, you know, it doesn't make sense. I don't like, I, I don't like to do that. Uh, let's harvest it. Uh, let's dry it uh, for two, three weeks. Um, I mean, naturally dried. You know, we don't use any. We just use fan to keep the, some air movement, but that's all what we do. We don't. We don't warm it or anything like that. And uh, and uh, that's a natural way to concentrate the uh, the sugar into the grapes, and it works very well. When I started doing that, we were working with with Viognier, and again, I'm getting back to acid into wine. Viognier is not that great in acid. So when you make a dessert wine with Viognier, I personally do feel that Viognier, you know, it's becoming heavy and, you know, like lacking some freshness. And if you want to crack that, then you need to dump a ton of tartaric acid to try to make your wine a bit more fresh. And you never get to this level of, of wine anyway. So, like, why don't we, and that's the reason why we decided to plant Petit Mansang, like, why don't we plant some Petit Mansang and why don't we try this wine with Petit Mansang? And so for the first year, we've done like a 50% Petit Mansang, 50% Bionier uh, dessert wine. But every time I was trying the Petit Mansang by itself, I'm like, you know, that's what Petit Mansang is good for. I mean, again, for me, Petit Mansang scream, I want to be a dessert wine. Uh, Jurançon is, is delicious. I love Jurançon. And, and it's, a, it's just because the acidity of Petit Mansang is perfect for us. That's the only grapes where... Acid is not a problem. I mean, one of the few grapes where acid is not a problem. Let's use it to make a dessert wine. And since then, we've been doing that with Tim and Sank, and I'm very happy with it. First vintage was 04. And uh, I love Tim and Sank. Well, talk about a grape that's just well adapted to Virginia. It, it does beautifully here. The problem with Petit, there's two problems with Petit Mansang. The first is that because of the ripening chemistry, it's really only suited to, for sweet wines. So it makes a gorgeous late harvest wine. That's really what it's meant to do. The problem is there's not much of a market for that. First of all, it's a very expensive wine to make. Second of all, the, that style of wine is not in much demand. So we make a small amount. Actually, restaurants buy a lot of it. We sell it some here. That's about it, and I purposely don't make very much. The other thing is the berries are so tiny and it's so pulpy with so many skins is that even though the yields are quite moderate, it looks good, of grapes, the yields of juice is minuscule because there's just not much juice in the berries. So it's, it's in that sense, it's a very low-yielding grape. Having said that, we've planted more of it because it's it's... So wonderful in the vineyard, it just every year it produces great crops and it doesn't have any problems. And this year we're going to start experimenting with a demi-sec style and experimenting because I'm not sure how that will work. Um, but sort of like a, um, you know, the producer Huet in Vouvray, uh, they're demi-secs I love. And so that's sort of the, the benchmark. You know, looking at what other people around the world are doing with their high acid wines. Um, in general, they're not dealing with the same alcohol level. They're generally lower alcohol when they have high acid, but the kind of extended 
aging, maybe with the lees, uh, but longer than you normally think about aging white wines, uh, you know, even over vintage, past vintage, uh, just to tame some of that acid is something I'd, I'd like to try. I haven't fully worked with yet, but, uh, you know, the stuff that's in the cellar from the 2015 vintage, that's what I'm, I'm trying to figure out is at what point are we finding the, the harmony of the acid with the rest of the wine and without losing some of the petite man sangness. There is so much petite man sangness to petite man sang. Um, say that five times really fast. <laughs> the cool thing about petite man sang is that they figured out what they're doing with it in the germ song. Um, we're not necessarily doing the same thing, so we're still figuring it out. So it's it's one of those wild rest varieties that being a winemaker here and now, you get to be part of figuring it out. And uh, and it seems like it's worth figuring out because it has it has so much personality and it has concentration. And, you know, concentration is not the be-all and end-all, but in a climate where you have rain, sometimes it's nice to have something with a little bit of density to it. That makes it seem like it's the right grape for or a right grape for Virginia. Yeah, Petite Mansing is great for Virginia. It has really thick skins, great natural acid, um, small berries, so it actually has a better chance against some of the weather conditions that we're facing, um, rain, humidity, the heat even. So that makes a really natural late harvest wine for us. It's usually one of the last, if not the last, that we pick. And one winemaker is looking to the tobacco industry to find tobacco barns used for drying tobacco and using them instead for pasito-style dessert wines. One of the things that, uh, yeah, I'm always love tinkering and experimenting. And, and um, you know, we had a grower who was a tobacco farmer. We still do down in Southside who, uh, he was the one actually thought of the idea of trying to dry some grapes. And so we did an experiment with him down there with uh, some traminette grapes and was fascinated by the process and really interested in the potential and made some really nice, you know, dessert wines out of it. So I said, we have to, you know, do this ourselves. And so I found our first tobacco barn and brought it up here. And there is some believe they're just lying all over Southside Virginia, not being used. So you can find them pretty cheap. And we started experimenting doing uh, what I was doing before was my late, my, Raisin Detra wine, which is, you know, from dehydrated grape, but we were doing it the old-fashioned way with fans and air drying, and it was a pretty tough process to do it that way. So I thought that um, trying to do it in tobacco wines would be more efficient. It's still pretty labor-intensive, but it's a really good system that we can actually do, you know, more in a um, managed environment than just hoping, you know, the conditions are right. We're in one of the tobacco dryers at Michael Schaap's Wineworks. Inside of this dryer, usually they'll, they'll bring in some Petit Mansang and Chambersen in here, and they'll start up the fans, and they'll dehydrate the grapes a little bit, getting a Pasito-style wine using old Virginia tobacco dryers. It's an interesting way to use some of the abandoned tobacco dryers yeah. that have been cast off by Virginia's waning tobacco industry. I think using the tobacco barns as our, our dryers for our dessert wines is a way of honoring our Virginia heritage while repurposing a piece of equipment that's not used as much as the tobacco industry needs them less and less. Though we've only talked to a few of them today, hundreds of Virginia winemakers have laid the groundwork for 
a thriving wine industry. But what can we look for in the future? In terms of like being a part of what Virginia is doing, I think looking for the great sites in Virginia, which honestly I think are largely unexplored and through the work that people have done so far, we're starting to learn what those, what makes a great site in Virginia, because it's similar to what makes a great site in Europe or what makes a great site in other parts of the world, but it's also different. It's, 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 you need to take into account the Virginia conditions that, that make things more challenging or that make things work better. Some people have already found some great sites, um, but there's, in order to keep the industry growth going and to keep the quality going at the same kind of upward rate, we really need to start focusing on sites. That was Ben Jordan from Early Mountain on the importance of sites. And in his 30 years of experience, Jim Law has come to a similar conclusion. The relationship between variety and soil is super important. See, I think grape varieties are something Virginia definitely is kind of still experimenting with. Um, with, uh, with Jake, I was really excited because he was doing a lot of kind of experimentation in the vineyard, planting things that weren't or at least I wasn't familiar with being grown in Virginia. I know he planted Chenin Blanc. Um, he's a big Tanat fan uh, and kind of was telling me to look, you know, well, I guess his philosophy is more kind of looking towards South America where it's similar climates where it's, you know, they have to combat the humidity as well. It's great that we can grow Merlot and Cabernet Franc um, to, to, you know, some good stuff. And it's great that they, they work well here in Virginia, but in some ways I think we need to be careful of just stopping there and saying, hey, okay, these are the things that work. Because these are, these are you know the French varieties that everybody tries first around the world. There are definitely other grapes um, and other climates, and we should keep dialing down into that. And that's where you know the discovery of Petit Mansen was an example of that of going somewhere else that maybe has a they don't have the same climate, but maybe it's different than Bordeaux, and that grape might react well to our climate. So, like Ben Jordan said. It's about dialing in and finding the right sites, the right grape varieties, and handling the insane weather conditions that Virginia can sometimes throw at you. You have you have to have this undying optimism with every bud break that this may be the best vintage that I've ever made. Thanks for joining us for this special look at winemaking in Virginia today. This has been Aaron Scala from Charlottesville. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.